0: Major support for Carolina Business Review is provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax audit and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Novant Health, bringing you world-class technology, clinicians, and care when and where you need it. And Sunoco, a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries.
1: Our current status, it's a tale of two realities right now. On one hand, a fundamentally and still expanding economy with very robust commercial activity and good prospects. On the other hand, uncertainty and some profane anxiety about geopolitical and domestic policy issues. Welcome again, thanks so much for supporting the most widely watched and longest running source of Carolina business policy and public affairs. Panelist Chris Fitzsimon and Dr. Adolphus Belk will join in this week's dialogue. And later on, she leads one of the Carolinas and in fact the Southeast's most prominent construction firms. Pat
0: Rogers joins us again. Gratefully acknowledging support by Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina. Please visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, healthcare, rural churches, and children's services. Bearings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Bearings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Chris Fitzsimon, Director of The Newsroom. Adolphus G. Belk, Jr., Professor of Political Science, Winthrop University. And special guest, Pat Rogers, President and CEO of Rogers Buildings.
1: Welcome to our program, uh, gentlemen. Happy spring. Here it has. It's yeah, sprung.
2: Absolutely.
1: Finally. Feeling pretty good. Yeah, finally. Thanks, Chris. Uh, let me start with something, Chris, and, and we expect you both to weigh in on this, and that's this idea that's starting, not starting to bubble up, but it's been around now for a couple of years and it's being popularized, economic opportunity and mobility. Um, Chris, what makes this different, economic opportunity and mobility? What makes it different now than it, than it was five or 10 years ago when we talk about the different races and different classes?
2: Well, I, I think it remains to be seen. I hope what makes it different is that people realize what's actually at stake and how much that sometimes you see economic news or you see the stock market there and you think, oh, everybody's doing well. Uh, isn't this a great time if you're a middle class or upper middle class, especially white person in, yeah. in the Carolinas? Uh, what I a little bit fear is that we're changing the nomenclature and we haven't gotten to the fundamental issues that, that undergird all those things. And what we're really talking about is people trapped. We've been talking about that for a long time. We see it in in the uh, I can speak to North Carolina's education system. Look at every evaluation of every school, and what we find is the low income schools are struggling the most. And yet we I feel like we end up blaming the kids and the teachers without addressing the struggles faced by low income families that makes them make them not mobile or trap them or whatever it is. So I think the uh, what I hope we're doing is trying to figure out another way to talk about this to bring more people to understand the struggles that these families across the Carolinas are facing and what public policy can do to help them. Uh, it's not just tell them to do better, it's not just say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps or do better on tests or we're gonna penalize you and your teachers, you know, the fundamental issue is these people's lives, these families' lives and what we can do as a society, as a government, as a community, as churches and synagogues uh, to actually help them improve their lives.
1: So, so. Uh Adolphus, is this recasting a problem we've had for a while? And as Chris just described it, it is it is at risk of being lost and maybe sanitized to something that says. Well, let's not forget, this is this is the crux of the problem. The
3: problem's been around for a while, but we can't always agree that the nature of the problem, and as a result, we have a difficult time hashing out potential solutions to the problem. The scholarship coming out of the 1980s suggested that what was really happening is that class had eclipsed race in terms of its importance in shaping the life chances of a particular segment of the African-American community. Uh, they'd oftentimes been described as the underclass, but people have also d- called them the abandoned, and that for them, It was the dislocation from educational and economic opportunity because of their social class that greatest explained their condition. Well, the more recent scholarship is suggesting that even for those um, African-Americans and other people of color who have ascended, there's still a gap in terms of securing opportunity and advantage and building on the advantages that your parents may have been able to accumulate as they were able to make the improbable jump up the social ladder.
1: Is there are there more sympathetic ears of those, not just affluent, but are those there more sympathetic ears now to the problem, as you've both described it, to say, okay, it is a similar problem that was, but now is there a different dialogue going on around it, and are you encouraged that there's going to be some forward momentum? Chris?
2: Um, I think there are some uh Different folks talking about it, but you know we need to do a lot more than talk about it. I do think we've gotten to the point where we finally, most policymakers, regardless of their ideology, realize the, the significance of the problem or the scope of the problem. One of the most depressing charts. I wish I could give the person credit. Uh, I can't. I can't. I ever saw was a chart just a, a simple you know X or cross, and in the top quadrant it had wealthy kids who do very well in school. On the bottom it was wealthy kids who do very poorly in school uh, tests. The other side was low-income kids who do very well in school and low-income kids who do very poorly. And the chances of somebody graduating from college were greater for, of a wealthy kid who did not very well in school than a low-income kid who did very well in school. And i always remember that, as, a, as until we change that, we're, I think this whole, this whole economic mobility uh, and all those things are, are, are gonna continue, as, and that's just one thing we need to do. I'd like to think policymakers get that, but uh, from my perspective, seeing the behavior of the folks in Raleigh Columbia and Washington. I'm not so sure that they do.
3: And and even when we compare apples to apples, when we (coughs) compare those children of color who are in these upper-income environments to their white counterparts, they are still less likely to (coughs) maintain or improve upon that position than their white counterparts.
1: Adolphus, you know, of course, we
3: don't have as much time as we need to commit to this.
1: Why do you think that is?
3: Well, because I think that. When we talk about people's lived experiences, their political lives, their economic lives, even if people have ascended in some way, race still tends to be an important factor in terms of the types of opportunities that people have. We're still a largely um, segregated society, and because we're still a largely segregated society, people attend segregated schools, and the social networks and connections that might lead to opportunities are just not there for some folks, even though their parents have been able to climb. And as far as policymakers recognizing this, I think part of the problem is for a long time people have refused to acknowledge the problem because they did not think a problem existed. The argument has been that the account with people of color is square. You have a Civil Rights Act, you have a Voting Rights Act, you've had a Fair Housing Act, you've had decades now of affirmative action. What else is it that you want? Meanwhile, there were much longer cumulative disadvantages that have shaped the chances that people have had to generate wealth across generations.
1: You know, okay, so one of the other, I don't want to shift gears, but we do have shift gears. I I want to bring it to something that's similar. You talk about policymakers and the importance of leading on policy and changing policy. Chris, in North Carolina, uh, as we were talking right before the program, uh, this happened in 1925. And that was every seat in the General mm. Assembly in North Carolina in 1925 was a contested election. That hasn't happened until recently. Right. And only one seat now is not contested. But still, the spirit of it is now in North Carolina, almost every seat, virtually every seat, is contested. What do you think that says?
2: Well, I think it says a couple things. I think it says that the current political climate that we're in has people energized. I think more of the energy is on the side that disagrees with the president, that disagrees with the majorities in Raleigh and Columbia and and Washington. Uh, I think if you look at the special elections around the country, I believe it's uh, into the 30s now of special legislative elections that have been held around the country uh, and the Democrats have won all of them. Uh, and most of the, or most of them, not all of them, most of them in heavily Republican districts. So I think there's a big enthusiasm sort of uh, uh, happening on one side of the political spectrum. Traditionally in North Carolina, the Republicans have done a very good job as a party recruiting candidates. The problem has been the Democrats have not. Uh, bar- on the other hand, it's, you have to make sure you say that one of the reasons it's been hard to recruit people to run is the way the maps have been drawn, and people think it's literally hopeless. Why would I run? when I know there's no chance I can get elected. That's still true in a handful of districts and I think uh, we need to do something about gerrymandering which is a huge priority I think to change our political system. But this is such an unusual year, I think people are thinking this could be a wave election year. And a lot of people have been convinced to run, thinking they have a legitimate chance, even when in many years they might not in that same district.
1: It is an election year in South Carolina, Dr. Bell. How do you feel about that same question? Not just North Carolina's uh, virtually all
3: their seats being contested, but what it says. Well, I think that part of what happens during these types of contests is that the politics that take place across the nation sometimes influence what happened in states. And in South Carolina, we have a special circumstance because we have Governor Henry McMaster serving out the unexpired term of former Governor Nikki Haley, and while he's had the sort of inside advantage as the acting incumbent governor, his approval rating is about 47% is disapproval, or um, not quite sure is about 25%, which means he's vulnerable, which explains, I think, why we're seeing some challenges for this upcoming Republican primary. Democrats, um, there are a lot of Democrats in the state. The challenge has been to get the type of candidates who can run the campaigns that will be attractive to voters. I think some people are going to look at what Archie Purnell did in South Carolina mm-hmm. District 5 during that special contest as a way of figuring out how to position themselves, because he ran really well in what has been a safer Republican seat over the last couple of cycles since Mick Mulvaney was able to knock off former Representative Spratt.
1: Do you, do you think, Chris, going back to the idea that you just said that Democrats have won some of most of the special elections that have gone on recently, mm-hmm. do you think the Democrats could put a counterculture um, uh, candidate up, much like Trump represented the counterculture in this last cycle?
2: Um, I, th- I don't know, I think the, uh, the argument, the consultants, if I was a political consultant sitting here, I would say that the, what they need to do is find some way to keep people energized but also reach across to some people who may have been disaffected and, and voted for uh, Republicans or even voted for Trump out of economic anxiety or for whatever, whatever reason, I think is coalition was made up of a lot of things, economic anxiety being one of them. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, it's, I'm sure the, the the political scientist on the stage knows more about this than I do. Uh, but obviously in a, it, we're in a mid-year election, an off-year election for the White House, so in North Carolina there's no statewide election on the ballot. Uh, but uh, it's a once-in-a-blue-moon election is sort of what is what it was called in North Carolina. Even so, the party out of power in the White House, uh, or party in power in the White House, usually loses a significant number of seats. The question is, will it be what what normally happens, or will this will be a wave election like we had in 2006 and 2010? Uh, I think a lot of political scientists are starting to see that wave coming. The election of Conor Lamb in Pennsylvania as a congressional district I think added fuel to that fire. Uh, so I think that uh, more than a sort of a, dis- a a different kind of candidate, I think what the the Democrats believe uh, is that they need to rally their rally folks around sort of putting an end to what they see as a cataclysmic uh, mm-hmm. uh, series of events in Washington.
1: Uh, one off quickly, Adolphus, in about 30 seconds. So South Carolina's unique nature of the election this year is going to be the overhang of the Chapter 11 reorganization of Scana and Santee Cooper. Uh, that looks like it's got a long tail on it. How much do you think that's going to affect the
3: outcome of the elections? Well, the, if you're if you're a Governor McMaster, what you really have to do is to find a way to distinguish yourself. To, so, if we look at Governor Haley, she was able to be the jobs governor. Yeah. That that was the way that she branded herself and talked about her administration and its priorities. The question is, well, what is Governor McMaster? And that might be something that he's able to hang his hat on if it goes well.
1: Yeah, it's a, there's a lot of lot of blue sky between now and when they come up with a solution that at least is acceptable gentlemen thank you Uh, stay with us on the program we're gonna meet our guest in just a moment next week on this program he's chairman president and CEO of a major employer in North Carolina for sure but a major quarry owner, aggregate, cement so on and so forth. When it comes to contracting, when it comes to infrastructure, uh, they are at the center of that bullseye. Ward Nye, Chairman, President, and CEO of Martin Marietta Materials, will be here. And then uh, a couple weeks after that, John Swafford is Commissioner of the ACC, uh, certainly with Final Four uh, going on recently in March Madness. Uh, ACC is well-loved in our region. We're going to talk to the Commissioner about uh, many things, and, and please stay with us for that. Uh, during the Great Recession, this country's retrenchment of all Overall building and construction dropped by almost 40% in some communities. It was more, some communities less. But by any measure, it was devastating and brutal for the building industry. Now, several years later, it's hard to square that reality with the way it's going now, the abundance of building, the stout development, et cetera, et cetera. Joining us again is Chief Executive Officer of among the largest construction and building contractors in the southeast, Pat Rogers of Rogers Builders. Uh, Madam Chair, welcome back. Thank you. Pat, when you uh, kind of take your temperature now in 2018 and see all of, all of your uh, very wide interests going on around the Carolinas and your building and the cranes going up, how do you reflect on how business is now versus how it was even three and four years ago?
4: Well, business is very robust. Uh, we are still suffering through uh, a craft worker shortage. Uh, when we came out of the recession, we came out later uh, as an industry than other industries did, especially in the commercial. Uh, construction because we, we went into it later. Uh, most projects are pretty complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, they take longer to build. Uh, they have a pretty long runway of, of financing. So when we came out of the recession and the boom began again, we had again a, work, a workforce shortage that I think was uh, contributed uh, to the anxiety that people had about how are we going to do everything that we have an opportunity to do in the Carolinas. And part of that was a a very fragile subcontractor market. A lot of subcontractors during the recession left, closed their businesses down. They weren't able to uh, continue their businesses. There's a saying uh, in the industry that, you know, it's uh, very difficult sometimes for companies who go into the construction industry to figure out how much cash they need to survive. Mm -hmm. And so cash became very, very difficult to get. Financing became very difficult to get. And so we saw the subcontractor uh, market really have a struggle to come back as we came back out of the recession and we had the boom economy. And that, that's that been a struggle mm-hmm. and continues to be a struggle. Yeah.
2: Chris? Well, we're in a big debate uh, in this country now about trade, free trade and tariffs. And I wondered if the construction industry is concerned about what this may, what looks like a, uh, a trade war beginning with China and some other countries will do to the raw materials that you need for your business.
4: Absolutely. And I would say that probably part of my answer would have been different yesterday than it is today, (laughs) uh, based on the news that we get. Uh, It's going to be difficult. Uh, We used to be able to talk to our suppliers and our subcontractors and ask them to hold their prices for us as we put our our packages together, as we put our budgets together to give to owners. And uh, now we're hearing we can't hold our number. Uh, We have a particular project where we have a, a large amount of steel piping. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to put a budget together for the owner and the project's not going to really begin for about three months. And the supplier said to us, I, can't, I won't even give you a number today. Call me back in three months and I'll give you a number today because I can't hold that number for three months for 90 days so there's no reason for me to give you that number. So it's becoming very difficult to be able to develop budgets that are reliable. Will that translate into <coughs> slower out of the gate than for
1: you? Or do you see that? clearly that's going to be an inflationary number and it's going to, and, and you're not going to pay the cost, you're going to have to bill your clients for that.
4: Well, we're going to be, have to become very creative uh, because our clients don't have, you know, an endless amount of money either. They have fixed budgets that they have to, you know, they're responsible for, uh, for their organizations, whether it's a hospital, a, a continuing care retirement community, a manufacturing facility, a school. So we have to be very careful about that. One thing that I think on the positive side for us as an industry is the onset of technology in the construction industry. Mm -hmm. It came very late to our industry, but it's here, and it's helping us be more creative in how we put work in place. Uh, We're seeing more modular units uh, come online, Mm -hmm. um, built-in factories, brought to the site, put in place, uh, and that's beginning to help us uh, on the economic side of being able to put projects in place.
3: Yeah, Given um, Chris's question about some of the political pressures that make things harder for the company, harder for folks in the industry, but at the same time, given your status as a major employer in the region and in the nation, how can you use the leverage that comes with that to try to marshal some of those allies in the realm of politics to try to make things more secure for the company and for others in the industry? And does that even mean partnering sometimes with rivals to try to make an appeal to lawmakers?
4: Absolutely, and there, you know, the trade organizations, like in any other industry, uh, that are working on that every day, uh, working to be able to bring the information. I think sometimes uh, it's if the information is there, I think our policymakers can make better decisions. So it falls on us as an industry to make sure that we're giving them the correct information on a timely basis. And I think we have several organizations throughout the industry that do that quite well. You know, you look around, Pat, in in any. I mean, Greenville, the upstate South Carolina, Charleston,
1: Raleigh, geez, Asheville, Charlotte, and you see all these cranes. Are we at risk of
4: overbuilding? Uh, Maybe in some market segments. Uh, We're not in multifamily, Uh, but I think there is, you know, it's interesting. Uh, Eleven months ago, I asked someone who is in multifamily, uh, developer, I said, are are we uh, on a bubble? And he said, absolutely and then we continue to see it go and go and go. I Mm asked a developer about two weeks ago, are we on a bubble? He said, well, I'll give you a baseball analogy. Uh, We're in the 11th inning. (laughs) And so, you know, I can't really speak to that. It's just anecdotal information that I get Mm -hmm. from developers that I talk to across the Carolinas.
2: Yeah. Another big policy debate, obviously, is in Washington and state capitals is immigration. You mentioned you have trouble in the the industry getting craft labor. Uh, uh, Obviously, a lot of the folks who do construction labor are immigrant Folks from the immigrant community, and I wondered whether they're undocumented or not. There obviously seems to be an anxiety in that community. I wonder if that makes it a little difficult for to find folks to actually build things. Uh, I think it, it does.
4: Uh, the one thing that I get anxious about is you know it would be nice if we could find a policy that worked because that would enable a whole segment of our industry anyway to be able to go to college, to go to, to a technical college, to go in worker training, where they would feel more comfortable doing that. Uh, I don't you know, know if that exists today, if they feel that comfortable doing that. You know, I'm very proud of the community colleges that we have in both Carolinas. If you look at how innovative they've been, not just recently, but through their entire history. If you look at Greenville, South Carolina, what they've done, you know, uh, uh, working hand in hand with with, uh, private organizations, with uh, private industry, and with the university system, you take a look at what they've done in their innovative manufacturing facility on the ICAR campus in Greenville, Mm -hmm. Uh, you look at what Wake Tech is doing, Uh, certainly Central Piedmont's been very creative in working in public-private partnerships. You look at the the Seaman example, Mm -hmm. uh, and you look at, uh, you know, Rowan Cabarrus Mm -hmm. Community College now getting ready to build a building uh, on the North Carolina Research Campus. Mm -hmm. So I think community colleges are doing a fantastic job in the Carolinas, working with the university system, working with, with private industry, but we have to be sure that we can make all of that available, that infrastructure available to everybody and so I think we do have a a situation on the immigration policy where maybe that's inhibited a little bit. Mm
3: -hmm. And and thinking about what you just mentioned with the university systems and the challenge with workers, but also thinking about your position as a woman in what is a very male-dominated industry, what are some of the things that your company is doing to recruit people, particularly women, people of color, into the industry in different capacities when it's sometimes very difficult to break through?
4: That's a that's a great question. It is very difficult to break through. Uh, we started a very robust internship program um, many years ago and that's been a way for us to bring uh, people who look a little different than what they you might see in our industry and that's rapidly changing and again I think part of that's changing because Uh, We were becoming an industry that, you know, did things the old-fashioned way. And now with technology, we look a little bit sexier, we look a little bit better, and we're bringing people in who have an interest. And we get an awful lot of our um, team members through that that internship program. Uh, We go into community colleges. Uh, You know, there's a wonderful program called ACE, Architecture, Construction, and Engineering, that's in over uh, 30, 35 states now. And it it introduces uh, high school students to architecture, construction, engineering. Uh, We're trying to go into the elementary schools, into the middle schools, uh, to try and, you know, make people aware of what the construction industry really does and the design industry really does and ACE has been a wonderful program to help us do that. You know and to that to follow up on that it seems like you're trying to you're you're tying to get two things here you just talked about that and
1: then right before when you answered Chris's question you talked about this trying to find these skills and you were putting a stake in the ground around te- technical and community colleges so what what would give those community colleges and tech schools Pat the ability to really get done what they need to get done to feed these skilled workers, these tradesmen, these tradeswomen, into not just your industry, but in general. What's holding that back?
4: Um, I think an awareness that uh, that private industry has a part to play in that and that we need to be more involved in that. We need to be more aware of it uh, and not just leave it up to the larger organizations. I think we, for years, have depended upon, you know, uh, Our community in the Carolinas has always struck me that we have a very deep foundation. uh, And that deep foundation is something that's uh, a real positive for us, you know. Uh, It's a real attribute, but it's time for us to build a broader foundation on that deep foundation that we have in the Carolinas, uh, to be able to move those technical jobs, uh, those manufacturing jobs, uh, skilled workforce labor, to move it forward. Uh, private industry, not just the big companies, not just the Siemens, the Bank of America, the Wells Fargo's, the Duke Energies, uh, who have all done a great job, and that Sunoco. The smaller companies, the smaller organizations, have to—they have to put a stake in the ground and mm-hmm. say, we have to become involved in this as well.
1: We, we've got about a minute left, and uh, you know, we we brushed on it a little bit. Adolphus brought it up—the uh, idea of diversity. You know, when you when you reflect on the Me Too movement, Pat, and in, in, male-dominated industry. How do you feel about it? It's a time, it's an idea whose time has come, no doubt. But do you think, let's not overreact, let's make sure we get this right, let's make sure we vet this and listen. I mean, how do you respond when it comes to some of these uh, sexual harassment issues that clearly now have bubbled to the
4: top? You know, I guess it's it's like um, we become more of a transparent society, and I think that's good. Uh, You know, we have the ability now through social media for people to tell their stories, people want to hear their stories. Uh, I think it's, uh, as you say, it, it, it's the time for people to understand what that really means, especially in the business world. And I think people are uh, more willing to hear the stories and to listen. Really, you get that sense among your
1: contemporaries and those females that lead organizations feel the same?
4: I do, Yeah. Uh, I do.
1: Okay, all right, well, that'll be the last word. Thank you again. It's thank been you. too long since you've been on, but thank you for taking the time. Thanks thank for your you. leadership. Good thank to see you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Belk, always nice to have you. Good to see Great you. Great to be here. All right. Chris, welcome. Thanks good for having you. me back. Thank you. Thank you for watching our program. If you have any comments or questions, carolinabusinessreview.org. You can watch shows, make comments. Thank you for your support, and uh, have a good weekend. Until next week, I'm Chris William. Good night. Mm-hmm.
0: Major funding for Carolina Business Review was provided by the Duke Endowment, Barings, Grant Thornton, Novant Health, Sunoco, Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you. Promotional consideration provided by Business North Carolina magazine. For more information, visit carolinabusinessreview.org.